0: This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Well, it seems I may have a new permanent guest on my Rumble livestreams. Sean from Third Railify has kinda moved in and taken over. I owe him a lot. He's helped me out tremendously. Catch us live talking crime news on Friday nights between 9.30 and 10 p.m. Mountain Time. Oh, and if you could do me a quick favor and drop a review or a rating wherever you found me, it helps a lot. And subscribe, if you haven't already. I appreciate y'all. Snooky, Atlantic City. Saltwater taffy. What do all of these things have in common? Well, a state on the East Coast that I imagine smells like rotting fish. New Jersey was the third state to enter the Union all the way back in 1787. I know I asked this last week, but what was wrong with the old Jersey? It's a fucking island for God's sake. Bitches love islands. Many famous people are from New Jersey. That doesn't really surprise me, but Jack Nicholson? John Travolta? Queen Latifah? Is New York's ball sack really that great? This East Coast mess is another weird one as far as the death penalty goes. Before Furman versus Georgia, they executed a whopping 361 people. A good chunk of those were after 1900. So this isn't just a case of witch trials and adulterers. New Jersey abolished the death penalty in 2007 and commuted the sentences of everyone on death row. A total of eight clemencies were granted before this point. They are a notoriously blue state with insanely strict gun laws and high property taxes. Gotta dump them tax dollars into the schools so we can fund diversity programs and shit. I obviously don't know much about New Jersey, but I have to imagine that everyone is either sunbaked to hell or high on spray-on tanner fumes. Today's episode has a lot of weird shit, so buckle up and grab some pruning shears and a Jack Rose. Citrus, grenadine, and applejack brandy, if you were curious. We're going up to the Garden State. Hopefully the last thing we see before we die isn't Queen Latifah on skis. Go watch Family Guy, you fucking normie. (laughs) Insurance fraud is a topic I've covered a handful of times already. Though it occurs quite a bit in the modern era, it really does feel like an early 1900s crime. A lot easier to get away with it back then. What better way to start the New Jersey episode than with bigamy and 1920s Tinder? Doctors are supposed to be good people, right? I mean... In my own personal experience, they most definitely are not. They fuck up, and a lot of them don't admit to their mistakes. But our opinion of physicians as a whole is generally pretty good. We don't imagine them to be criminals. Henry Campbell was an odd duck, to say the least. Though he was a practicing physician, he was still hungry for more money. On February 23, 1929, the charred body of a woman was found next to a highway in Cranford, New Jersey. She'd been shot in the head before being set on fire. This woman was very difficult to identify as she had no ID on her and her remains were badly damaged. We've come a long way in the last hundred years, but back then it took some time and a bit of luck to identify this poor woman. Authorities in Greenville, Pennsylvania contacted the police in Cranford to let them know that the corpse sounded a lot like a missing woman they'd been searching for since early February, Mildred Mowry. A little bit of digging revealed that this widow had recently remarried a 60-year-old doctor named Richard Campbell. The pair had met through a matrimonial agency. Just one day after they said their vows, Campbell convinced Mildred to deposit her life savings into his bank account. A thousand dollars was a lot back then. After his new bride handed over her money, Campbell claimed he had to work and ran off to California. Mildred tried to keep in touch with letters, but these dwindled down to silence. So like any good wife, Mildred got worried and tried to track Campbell down. California wasn't his destination at all. Campbell had made it to Elizabeth, New Jersey, before settling down and using his real name again. He'd abandoned Mildred and gone back home to his wife and kids, the family he'd bailed on in order to scam a lonely widow out of her life savings. On April 11th, 1929, police came knocking at his door with an arrest warrant. The charge? Murder, of course. During a search of Campbell's house, a 38 caliber automatic gun was found. This matched the bullet found in Mildred's head. Campbell never denied killing Mildred and burning her body. He only claimed that he could not remember committing the murder. I guess if insanity isn't a viable option, amnesia might still work. The prosecutor in this case laughed off this claim of amnesia and read out Campbell's confession in which he admitted to killing Mildred to cover up his bigamous marriage. Letters the man had written to Mildred were also presented. These painted a very bold picture of a man who wanted to manipulate this lonely woman into giving him her money. Some women just don't learn. Hell, I'm one of them. took me almost a year to finally take the rose-colored glasses off and call out the bullshit that was going on. That's right, guys, my anxious ass is back on the market. So if you're a single white guy in the Salt Lake area who likes true crime and black metal and isn't opposed to thunder thighs and a beer gut, well, you know where to find me. (laughs) Rosalie Campbell did her best to fight for her husband in court. She told the story of his downward spiral, saying that after the couple had moved from Chicago to Maryland, her husband started losing it. He started getting headaches and losing weight. Am I losing it? I could have sworn I was just dehydrated. Apparently, those aren't the only things I have in common with the psychopath. Whatever medication Campbell was taking for his headaches began to affect him mentally. He became very irritable and paranoid, going so far as to randomly start carrying a gun. Campbell did the dumbest thing an accused person can do, and took the stand in his own defense. He claimed that he visited Mildred so he could return her money. This involved driving the woman around to a handful of banks, presumably to withdraw money, but none of them would help him. So they continued driving around, Campbell popping pills to maintain his sanity and telling his second wife all about his real family. Mildred told him she didn't want him to give up what he already had for her. God, this case really is lining up with a lot of the shit going on in my life. What's up with that? Sometime during the journey, Campbell claimed his mind went blank. His defense attorney asked him if he remembered shooting Mildred, to which he said, No, I don't remember doing so. The prosecutor called out Campbell on his bullshit so well that the accused man just hung his head and gave up. Two applications for friendship clubs were laid out in front of Campbell. This was 1920s Tinder, or some shit. On these applications, he listed his disposition as the best ever if well-treated and claimed his health was good. Look this motherfucker up. He looks sickly, like a mad scientist at the tail end of a battle with cancer. Campbell's desired traits in a woman? Widowed with no children. All the pieces are there. He was also suspected of shooting another woman, Margaret Brown, in the head in 1928 and setting her body on fire. He was never charged with this crime, but it is believed that he killed a handful of his previous wives that he'd met through a matchmaking service. Mildred wasn't the only one who got scammed. Between 1910 and 1928, Campbell married several women and there is no record of divorce from any of them. Henry Colin Campbell Close was executed by electrocution on April 18th, 1930. Clearly an unhinged, greedy individual with no regard for human life. His claims of being a doctor were a lot like his claims of amnesia. Blatant lies. He was actually a civil engineer, which isn't a bad career choice, and at one point he worked as an advertising executive. Why he felt the need to lie about that is a mystery to me. Again... Look this motherfucker up, because the evil mad scientist persona really fits this guy. Due to the time period, I am unable to find anything on Campbell's Last Words or Last Meal. Mass shootings are a topic that I don't like to cover, because they bring out the worst in everyone. Common sense tells us that every mass shooter has to be somewhat mentally ill. Why else would they think it's a good idea to take a firearm out in public and indiscriminately kill random people? Howard Unruh was born on January 21st, 1921, in Camden, New Jersey. He was always pretty reserved, but after returning home from World War II, he became a bit of a recluse. I can only imagine why. His role as an American soldier was to drive a tank and take out as many Germans as he could. For whatever reason, he kept very meticulous notes of every kill. In 1945, Unruh was honorably discharged and walked away from his military career with a bunch of medals and guns. PTSD from war has to be one of the worst things a person can deal with. I've never served, but I know people who have, and, well, they've seen some shit, to be blunt with you. I can only imagine that World War II really fucked up a lot of the people who made it home alive. Unruh decorated his room at his mother's house with guns and military items, even setting up a shooting range in his basement. Rather than get a job and help bring money into the house, Unruh stayed at home most of the time and attended daily church services. His neighbors often teased him for being a mama's boy, and his relationship with them declined rapidly. The young man became paranoid about what the neighbors were saying about him. There's a sword and scale- yeah, I know, of course there is- about a Florida man named Billy Woodward. That case parallels this one in so many ways. Episode 153, if you're interested. That story has everything, including emotional support chickens. I have a soft spot for chickens so i sympathize with mr woodward a lot more than i probably should have anyway howard unruh came home from the movies early on the morning of september 6th 1949 to find that a gate he'd recently built had been stolen reminds me of that meme where someone's front porch is missing and it says can't have anything in detroit At around 8 a.m. that same morning, Unruh woke up and put on his best suit before having breakfast with his mother. The Germans, ironically enough, have a word for eating breakfast, Frühstücken, literally means to eat breakfast. They don't have verbs for other mealtimes, just breakfast. I guess it is the most important meal of the day. At 9.20 a.m., Unruh left his house armed with his Luger P08 pistol in search of those he wanted to retaliate against. In just 12 minutes, Unruh managed to shoot at 26 people. Half of them were killed and a handful of others were injured. This murder was premeditated, no question about that, but the victims were chosen completely at random. After hearing the approaching sirens of the police, Unruh made his way back to his apartment and barricaded himself inside before exchanging fire with them. Eventually, they were able to convince him to surrender and he was brought in for questioning. After the interrogation, it was discovered that Unruh had also been injured in the shootout. His victims ranged in age from 2 to 68. He fired indiscriminately at everyone in his line of sight. Out of respect for these poor souls who lost their lives, I'm going to list their names and ages. Just saying 13 people killed doesn't seem like I'm doing them justice. Emma Matlack, 68. Minnie Cohen, 63. James Hutton, 45, Maurice Cohen, 39, Rose Cohen, 38, Helen Wilson, 37, Clark Hoover, 33, Helga Zagrino, 28, John Joseph Pilarchik, 27, Alvin Day, 24, John Wilson, 9, Oris Smith, 6, and Thomas Hamilton, 2. Unruh was charged with 13 counts of willful and malicious slaying with malice aforethought and three counts of atrocious assault and battery. Surprisingly enough, he was found to be legally insane and spared from criminal prosecution. I guess 1940s courts were able to see how badly the war fucked people up. Howard Barton Unruh passed away from an unspecified illness on October 19, 2009. He spent his entire life after the shooting locked up in the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. He is considered the first single-episode mass murderer in U.S. history. This case shed some light on the mental health struggles of those who came back from World War II, and the federal government decided to put additional funding into mental health treatment for this group. PTSD ain't a fucking joke. I make jokes about it sometimes, mostly because I'm convinced I have a very mild case of it, but it is definitely a serious issue, especially with war vets. If you are a veteran or if you're concerned about one and you need some help, call 988 and press one to be connected to someone qualified to offer support to veterans. This is a crisis lifeline and there are people standing by to help you 24 seven. PTSD is a bitch, don't fight it alone. Obviously, a natural death doesn't come with a last meal, but Unruh's last public words were spoken during an interview with a psychologist. I'd have killed a thousand if I had bullets enough. Chilling. Absolutely fucking chilling. Oh, and one more thing before we move on. The German word Unruhish means restless. This guy's last name basically means not peaceful. What a fucking thing that is. Nevada was full of Eastern European immigrants, and I guess New Jersey is full of Germans? I don't know. Usually I try to cover cases that you probably haven't heard of. The big ones have been done to death, pun partially intended. While looking up some New Jersey cases, I stumbled across one that, well, it shocked me a bit. I wasn't expecting the rotting fish state to be the location of such an infamous crime. Born in Kamenz in the German Empire in 1899, Bruno Hauptmann was the youngest of five siblings. He joined the Pfadfinderbund at age 11 and attended Realschule until the age of 14 when he dropped out. Continuing down a path I respect very much, he worked a day job and attended Gewerbeschule at night. After studying carpentry for a year, he switched to Maschinenschlosser. Oh, do y'all not speak German? my bad. To keep it short, Hauptmann was a boy scout who attended public school and then went on to trade school after dropping out. He liked to build shit, that's why he started with carpentry and switched to machine building. The young man lost his father in 1917 and soon after learned that his brother Herman had been killed in France during World War I. The loss continued with his brother Max losing his life in Russia. I'm assuming also a casualty of war. Shortly after losing three of his family members, Hauptmann was conscripted and assigned to the artillery. Hauptmann made many claims about what he did during his time in the war. He started in Bautzen and was moved to Königsbruck, and then was sent to Western France. Apparently he was gassed sometime in the fall of 1918 and also struck in the head with a piece of metal as his position was being bombed. Thank God for helmets, I guess. He was knocked out for several hours, but ultimately survived. After the war ended, Hauptmann and one of his friends decided to rob two women who were pushing baby carriages full of food. Again, post-war Germany. A lot of weird shit going on around this time. During this robbery, Hauptmann's friend waved his service pistol around. This wasn't the only crime Bruno Hauptmann committed, though. Far from it. He was charged with burglarizing a mayor's house and a handful of other burglaries, and then decided to come to the US illegally, of course. Here we fucking go. The Germans really can't help themselves, can they? He arrived in New York in September of 1923 and was taken in by another German guy who got him a job as a carpenter. Hauptmann got married and had a kid, you know, the American dream this life of no crime was relatively short-lived on the evening of march 1st 1932 a man climbed a handmade ladder into the bedroom of charles Lindbergh jr and kidnapped the little boy he left a ransom note demanding fifty thousand dollars the Lindberghs did in fact pay the ransom but their baby wasn't returned his body was found in the woods on may 12th about four miles from his home baby charles was determined to have died from a blow to the head this injury could have been intentional or accidental. Some theories state that it might have occurred during the process of actually taking Charles out of his room, but it's never been proven one way or the other. As you may be aware, technology wasn't so great back in the 1930s. They didn't have DNA or anything fancy like that to go off of, so detectives actually had to bust their ass to figure things out. These particular detectives had a stroke of dumb luck on September 17, 1934 when a man passed a gold certificate to a gas station attendant as payment. These were incredibly rare at the time as they were being pulled out of circulation. It just so happened that this $10 certificate had been included in the ransom payment. The gas station attendant wrote down the license plate number of the guy who gave it to him and the police tracked the man down. Drivingly dark blue Dodge was a fair-skinned, blue-eyed man by the name of Bruno Hauptmann. The FBI started following him, and he was arrested just two days after using the gold certificate as currency. After a chase, of course. Gotta have one of those in here somewhere. The trial itself was, as you can probably imagine, fucking insane. Some of the evidence presented against Hauptmann included nearly $15,000 of the ransom money they found in his garage, as well as testimony from handwriting experts that examined the ransom notes and compared them to documents previously written by Hauptmann. Normally, in a trial, you get an expert or two, but this was a huge case. They had eight handwriting experts come in and testify. During opening statements, the New Jersey Attorney General told the jury that Charles died from falling from the ladder. Must have misspoken, or some shit, because this same lawyer claimed later on in the trial that Charles was hit in the head with a chisel that was found at the scene. It's one or the other, my guy. One of those makes Hauptmann incredibly reckless, and the other one makes him a fucking monster. This discrepancy in the state's timeline would later find its way into Hauptmann's appeal, Hauptmann did what almost every criminal does when they're caught. Rather than own up to his mistakes, he claimed that he'd found a box of gold certificates in his garage that had been left there by a man named Isidore Fish. This box contained about $15,000 in gold certificates. Because Fish owed him about $7,500, Hauptmann decided to just take all of it. Honestly, can't blame him there. I'd do the same. But what I wouldn't do is kidnap a fucking baby for ransom and then lie about it. What the fuck? Police would find a ledger of all of Hauptmann's financial transactions, but there was no record of the debt Fish supposedly owed him. All of the evidence against this strange German man was circumstantial. They had no fingerprints, no eyewitnesses, no smoking gun, or chisel, I guess. But Hauptmann had a history of doing illegal things for money. He'd used the stolen gold certificates... That would be some crazy fucking luck to stumble across a box of those in your garage. Hauptmann was convicted of the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. and sentenced to death. Bruno Richard Hauptmann was executed by electrocution on April 3rd, 1936. His guilt has been widely debated since the crime occurred a legally blind man claimed to have seen Hauptmann near the Lindbergh house that night. I mean, that's some pretty fucking reasonable doubt right there. This combined with the police allowing the crime scene to be contaminated. I mean, a retrial at the very least. As my favorite Canadian likes to remind me, I love the death penalty, but only when the accused is proven beyond any doubt to be guilty. Even if Hauptmann was guilty of the kidnapping, was he just reckless or was he a monster? What actually killed baby Charles? No one can say for sure. Hauptmann's last words were, Ich bin absolut unschuldig an den Verbrechen, die man mir Last legt. Oh, are you too lazy to throw that into Google Translate? Okay, few Americanskis, he said, I am absolutely innocent of the crimes I am accused of. His last meal was salmon salad, corn fritters, olives, celery, sliced cheese, fruit salad, cake, coffee, and milk. No crime sends me into a rage quite like the rape of a child. There is something, especially stomach-churning, about a person taking advantage of someone so innocent and helpless who probably doesn't even understand what's going on. This next case is fucking disgusting, but the atrocity of the crime itself is mirrored by the judicial failures that surround it. Grab a stress ball or something. You're gonna need it. Oh, and, uh, this dude's name is gonna fuck me up. Might be French, might be Hispanic, might be something else entirely. I don't know. Throwback to the Alabama episode. It's been almost a year and I still can't figure out where the fuck some of these people came from. Sometime in 1979, an 18-year-old man by the name of Jesse Timendequas stood in a courtroom in Piscataway, New Jersey. There it is. There's the weird town name. He was here to plead guilty to the attempted aggravated sexual assault of a five-year-old girl. Rather than take this horrible case to trial and risk losing, Timon DeQuas took a plea deal. He'd have to go to counseling, but if he did, he'd be given a suspended sentence. This is a pedophile we're talking about. Someone who wants to do unspeakable things to children. He's already shown at the age of 18 that he is willing to actually carry out his fantasies. As you probably guessed, he did not attend the court-ordered counseling sessions. You know what he got for breaking his plea agreement? Nine months. Nine fucking months for trying to steal the innocence of a five-year-old. Slaps on the wrist don't do anything to deter crime. In 1981, Timon DeQuas pled guilty to a sexual assault he had committed against a seven-year-old girl. This landed him. Wait for it. Six years, in a treatment facility. Just wait guys, it gets better. On July 29th, 1994, another seven-year-old girl in Hamilton Township would go missing while she was out riding her bike. Megan Kanka was lured into the house that Tim and Daquash shared with his two roommates who were also convicted sex offenders. I have drilled into my kids' heads that you don't go anywhere with anyone you don't know ever. Not if they offer you a ride, want help finding a missing pet, or even if they promise you a gift. Cases like this are why I'm such a Nazi about it. Megan was told that Tim and Daquas had a puppy inside his house. Being a trusting seven-year-old girl, she just wanted to go see the puppy. I mean, who wouldn't? Slap a Free Ecstasy and Family Guy sign on the side of a van and I'll see y'all in hell, I guess. For the longest time, I was weird about letting my daughter walk five houses up the street to go play with her friend, who is the daughter of one of my friends. I have a deep paranoia. It's just the way I am. I'm not alone, though. Megan's parents immediately called the police when she didn't return home on time. A neighborhood search was conducted, and a neighbor claimed he'd seen Megan riding her bike at about 2.30 that afternoon. Seems plausible. But this same neighbor had told Maureen Kanka that he'd seen Megan just before dinner time. When police questioned him about it, the man said he'd seen Megan between 5.30 and 6.00 p.m. He wasn't lying about this. He'd definitely seen her. One of the man's roommates allowed the police to come in and search the house. This isn't really an uncommon thing in missing child cases. Kids find their way into weird places, even if they aren't kidnapped. After the cops got done searching the house, they interviewed the neighbor, who kept giving conflicting information. Nothing really came of this interview. They had nothing to hold against him, so the man was released. Just one day later, though, he went back down to police headquarters and told them that Megan was deceased. He explained that he'd left her body in a park. Don't think for a second that he had a guilty conscience. It was his roommate, a sex offender, who badgered him into confessing after he'd repeatedly denied any involvement. The young man eventually led police to Megan's body and told them most of the terrible things he'd done to her. After getting Megan inside the house, Tim and Dequas raped her and slammed her head into a dresser. This didn't knock her out, though. She was still conscious. So Tim and Dequas put plastic bags over her head and a belt around her neck. Megan screamed and fought until she lost consciousness. Assuming that she was dead, her attacker put the young girl into his truck before raping her again. He then drove to Mercer County Park and assaulted the little girl one more time before dumping her body in some weeds. If this case isn't deserving of a death sentence, I really don't know what is. During his trial, Timon DeQuas didn't testify or present any witnesses. He's probably said this a hundred times by now, but murder can be justified once in a while. Rape can't. There is no legitimate reason to rape someone, especially a child. He had no defense. Probably should have just pled guilty instead of wasting everyone's time and money. Timon DeQuas was found guilty of two counts of felony murder one count of first-degree kidnapping, and four counts of first-degree aggravated sexual assault. Throw this motherfucker in the gulag. Or, better yet, take him down in the basement and do him the way they did Andre Chikatilo. After careful consideration, the jury found that the aggravating factors greatly outweighed any of the mitigating factors, and Timon was sentenced to death. Jesse Timendequas had his sentence commuted to life without parole when New Jersey abolished the death penalty in 2007. So many second chances for a guy that didn't deserve even one. This case is a prime example of how fucking broken the system is. A five-year-old little girl was brutalized and murdered by this monster, and he gets to keep soaking up tax dollars and breathing our air. This man, like most other violent psychopaths, had a rough childhood. His mother had ten kids with seven different men. His father was a violent drunk with a criminal past. They came together and raised Tim and Daquas and his siblings in poverty and abuse. But none of that is an excuse for raping and murdering a little girl. Believe it or not, some good did come out of this case. Megan Kanka's parents pushed really hard to get a law passed that would require the community to be notified when a sex offender was moving in. This is known as Megan's Law, and it's a thing almost everywhere now. New Jersey does things a bit differently, and they classify sex offenders based on their risk level. If you ask me, all pedophiles are high-risk offenders and should be executed when found guilty beyond any doubt. Dead sex offenders. Don't re-offend. The courts are very on the fence about this issue. In 1995, the New Jersey Supreme Court upheld Megan's Law. But in 1996, a U.S. District Court ruled that notifying the community of the presence of sex offenders who have already served their sentence is unconstitutional because it violates their constitutional guarantees against ex post facto punishment. Don't rape little kids and you won't lose your rights? It's not rocket science. We've all heard a million stories of men killing their estranged wives. Marriage is tough sometimes. Trust me, I know. I've been going through a hellish end of my own marriage for months now, and it hasn't been easy. Every time I read about a case of domestic violence murder, I can't help but wonder. If they didn't want their wife to leave, why didn't they treat her better? You don't get to have your cake and beat the shit out of it, too. Ralph Hudson met the woman he'd eventually marry at a restaurant in Atlantic City that he once worked in as a cook. Myrtle was his third wife. There's a red flag right off the bat. I like to make jokes about don't marry a felon because, well, technically I married a felon, but in reality, it just isn't a good idea. Hudson had a handful of charges on his record for things like public intoxication and disorderly conduct. That's not a glaring red flag, but it's safe to say he was a pretty unsavory character. Myrtle didn't stay with her second husband for very long. He was abusive. She did the smart thing and got the fuck out of there. The marriage lasted only a few months. In 1960, Hudson took a trip to the city of Brigantine, New Jersey, to visit his estranged wife. His goal was to break into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Lighthizer, who were housing Myrtle, and beat her up maybe killer? I don't know. Domestic abusers are awful people all around. This incident landed him assault and battery charges, as well as a charge of attempted burglary. Hudson was given six months in jail, but was released early just a few days before Christmas. They fucked up by letting him out. I don't think that needs to be said. Violent criminals should not be given light sentences or let out early. On December 26, 1960, Hudson went out drinking at a few different bars in Atlantic City. After getting good and shit-faced, he decided to call the house where Myrtle was living. You know, the one he tried to break into. At approximately 2.30 a.m. on the 27th, their phone started ringing. Ralph Hudson was on the other end, threatening the couple as well as his estranged wife. Later on that day, the Lighthizers decided to meet up with Hudson. I really don't see what they were trying to do here. This sounds like a recipe for disaster. But they met him outside a bar in Atlantic City, and he threatened them before going inside. The Lighthizers then went to a police station to file a complaint. During this time, Hudson made his way into the restaurant where Myrtle was working, this same place where he'd previously worked and met his wife. He'd purchased a bread knife from a discount store with one goal in mind, to finish what he started. While the Lighthizers were at the police station handling their complaint, Hudson entered the restaurant and stabbed Myrtle in the abdomen. With a fucking bread knife. Can you imagine? That is absolutely horrific. Witnesses claimed that after stabbing Myrtle, Hudson said something to the effect of, Nobody is going to double-cross a Hudson. This wasn't enough, though. As his wife lay bleeding out on the floor, he reportedly stood over her, spat on her, and said, Die, Myrtle. Suffer like you made me suffer. If you don't die now, I'll kill you next time. During the attack, a brave man came at Hudson with a chair and hit him hard enough that he dropped his knife. Other people in the restaurant tried to help Myrtle, but Hudson told them, Don't bother with her now. She's dead. Myrtle died from the two stab wounds to her chest. One had pierced her heart. For whatever reason, I know what the reason is. The prosecution wants a guaranteed win. That's all it ever is. They offered Hudson a plea deal, second degree murder and the death penalty off the table, but he wouldn't take it. He instead opted to take his case to trial where he testified on the stand that he was in fact guilty of the murder. He claimed he was so drunk that he couldn't remember a lot of the details. He'd been on an 18 hour binge, But, like I've said so many times before, alcohol isn't an excuse for shitty actions. The jury agreed and found him guilty of first degree murder. After he was convicted, Hudson said, I loved my wife more than life itself. I worshipped the ground she walked on. Then why the fuck did you stab her in the heart with a bread knife? Ralph James Hudson was executed by electrocution on January 22, 1963. He was the last person to be executed by the state of New Jersey. His attorneys fought like hell to get him clemency, but Hudson himself had expressed that he wanted the death sentence. It was better to die than spend any length of time in prison. Probably should have thought about that before he quite literally broke his estranged wife's heart. Marriage isn't easy, especially when you're an abusive piece of shit. Through all this heartache and confusion, I haven't once wanted to stab my ex with a bread knife. Wanted to key the car he borrowed from that skank, but I didn't do it. There's no reason to add injury to the insult. He left for a reason. Just wish he would've ripped the band-aid off sooner instead of leading me on for an entire year. Hudson didn't have any last words. His last meal was roast beef, french fries, coffee, peas, ice cream, apple pie, and cigarettes. Why am I not surprised? Before we close this one out, I found a recent murder case that's very confusing. Hassan Sharif was found in his car with multiple gunshot wounds on January 3rd, 2024. He was a beloved Imam and transportation safety officer at the Newark Liberty International Airport. The shooting took place just after the pre-sunrise prayers at his mosque that day. Those who knew him said that he was dedicated to his community and gave his life to God. This crime was not deemed to be an anti-Muslim hate crime, but police declined to say why they came to that conclusion. Three men have been arrested in connection with Hassan's murder. Kevin Rogers, Deshawn Kinchin, and Abdul Sharif, who is the victim's son. None of them have been directly accused of the murder, but they were arrested on weapons charges in relation to it. During a search of an apartment in Newark, police found a revolver, and none of the men had proof that they owned it legally. It's unclear if this is the same weapon used to shoot Hassan. There's not a whole lot of information available at this time. A $25,000 reward has been offered for information leading to the killer's arrest. About five months before his murder, Hassan had been accosted by a man in his mosque's parking lot. He wrestled with the attacker and managed to escape with his life. But that begs the question, was this the same guy coming back to finish the job? There are so many angles you can look at this crime from. Some think it was a hate crime. Some think it's just a case of random gun violence. The New Jersey attorney general is using this incident to push against guns like they do. Never let a tragedy go to waste. The bottom line here is that a man died. His religion, his profession, and the weapon he was killed with do not matter. Focus on bringing the killer to justice rather than pushing an agenda. Hassan Sharif is remembered by many as a kind man, a civilizer, and a light giver. May his friends and family find some peace, and the cops find his killer. That's gonna do it for the rotting fish and pollution state. My apologies to any Jersey people who may be out there listening. I'm from a landlocked mountain state. I'm very biased against the East Coast. If you enjoyed this episode, write it on your back with some Spray on Tanner. I'm available on Rumble, Odyssey, and most podcast apps. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at Last Meal Pod. I'll be back next week with something interesting. Still trying to catch up on writing, but in case you couldn't tell, my life is a fucking mess at the moment. So I'm taking things one day at a time. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.